Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Season 3 of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast, where, as always, you'll find evidence-based insights from world-leading experts to take your performance to the next level. Today, I'm really excited to be welcoming Dr. Ina Hazan, PhD, a faculty member at Harvard Medical School and a clinical psychologist specializing in health psychology and performance excellence training using biofeedback and mindfulness-based approaches. In this episode, Dr. Hazan discusses her background and journey into studying biofeedback and mindfulness and shares how biofeedback enhances mindfulness and how mindfulness enhances biofeedback. She also discusses heart rate variability, biofeedback, and achieving your ideal resonance frequency rate. She'll also highlight how mindfulness meditation literally changes your brain before diving into how powerful emotions like shame and fear drive our unconscious behaviors. Lots of fantastic insights and actionable tips here from a a world leader in biofeedback research. As usual, you can find the links and the podcast summary in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. And for this episode, you can visit drbubs.com forward slash podcast forward slash biofeedback. If you're interested in more on the topic of meditation, then definitely head back to season two episode 14 with Dr. Abhimanyu Sud on meditation, suffering, and the opioid crisis. All right, this episode is sponsored by my new book, Peak, the new science of athletic performance that is revolutionizing sports. You can check out all the expert blurbs at athleteevolution.org, such as Dr. Fergus Connolly, who says, Peak is one of the most impressive and detailed books on applied sports science a must-have for any practitioner in performance. Again, you can check out all the expert blurbs there at athleteevolution.org, and please keep sharing your feedback on social media using the hashtag GoPeak. That's the hashtag G-O-P-E-A-K, GoPeak, and tag me at Dr. Bubs. Finally, another quick word from this episode's sponsor, Totem Sport. Totem Sport is the world's only 100% natural supplement, the only sport drink supplement that contains all 78 naturally occurring minerals and trace elements. The research on ocean mineral water is ramping up, a recent study highlighting its major promise as the optimal rehydrating strategy over spring water and other sport drinks. Totem Sport is the evolution of hydration, the world's only 100% natural sport drink, tested and approved by informed sport and informed choice. Use the promo code BUBS10, B-U-B-B-S-10 at checkout and save 10% at totemsport.com. That's totemsport.com and defy the norm. All right, let's do this. Season 3, Episode 30. Enjoy. Dr. Hazan, thanks so much for carving out the time today. Thank you, Mark, for having me. It's a pleasure. Terrific. Well, maybe we can start off our conversation here today with uh, you telling us a little bit more about how you got interested in this field and the impetus for the book. 
certainly. Um, when I was in graduate school, I was training to be a clinical psychologist, um, and I was particularly interested in health psychology. So I worked a lot with people with um, various psychophysiological disorders. So disorders where there is a psychological and a physiological component. So disorders such as anxiety, high blood pressure, chronic pain, headaches, things like that. And during my training, I discovered biofeedback, um, which turned out to be incredibly successful for people with these psychophysiological disorders um, for whom traditional psychotherapy and medical interventions were not successful. Um, using biofeedback, you know, people had a tremendous success in reducing the headaches, uh, reducing anxiety, reducing blood pressure in situations where you know, medication and uh, traditional therapies just didn't do it. Uh, but there were also times when my patients would get stuck with the biofeedback and not be able to make, to make progress. Um, this usually happened if they were trying really hard to make changes that weren't actually possible. Hmm. Um, so changing, for example, changing the way they feel or the way they think, uh, or, you know, changing the situation right in this moment, uh, where they just simply didn't have control. And so, uh, this was really hard to work with um, until I discovered mindfulness and um, one of my mentors introduced me to, to mindfulness and I realized that we actually don't need to control how we think or how we feel. And this was such a freeing experience because, you know, I tried to help my patients to change how they feel or how they think or and they they couldn't do it and I couldn't do it. And it was it was it was it was hard work and it was frustrating and it, and it didn't work. Right. Um, so this idea that. I don't actually need to help them change thoughts and feelings was incredibly liberating uh, and um, helped my patients and me make a lot of progress. So this changed the way I work and this changed the way, uh, you know, my personal life went. Um, so instead of trying to change what we're thinking and feeling, instead, we're now focusing on things that are actually under our control, which is the way we respond to our thoughts and feelings. It's fascinating. I mean, with complex conditions like that, I mean, obviously, uh, so multifactorial and, and yeah, having these additional tools to be able to really get to the root of what's going on is, is, mm -hmm. is incredible. And of course, all of your research in the area. So perhaps you can tell listeners, most of them are going to be familiar with the term biofeedback, but mm -hmm. to get everyone on the same page, can you tell us what biofeedback is and perhaps importantly, you know, what it is not? <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, so the short uh, way to define biofeedback is uh, a way for us to develop greater awareness and ability to influence our physiological and mental functions by using signals from our own bodies. Uh, now, we do this by using instruments that measure these physiological functions. So, for example, um, your heart rate, your breathing, your muscle tension, uh, and then you know, having this information be a put through the computer and then fed back to you in order to make helpful changes. Um, so th these are two important components. There has to be information that's being recorded from your body and that information is then being fed back to you for the purposes of making the kind of changes you'd like to make. Uh, so biofeedback is, you know, cannot work without having some sort of instrument um, so, you know, just listening to a recorded meditation, for example, is not biofeedback. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, even, you know, using a, a pacing um, app for your breathing on, the, on your phone or your tablet is also not biofeedback. While it is making physiological changes, um, that app doesn't actually know anything about what's going on with you, right? So you, you need to have both the ability to measure 
physiology and physiological functioning and the ability to see what's happening in order to make a change. Terrific. And there's obviously a strong synergy between biofeedback and mindfulness. And in the book, you share the parable of loot to highlight this connection. Can you share that uh, story with listeners? Um, absolutely. I'd love to. Um, in my work of combining biofeedback and mindfulness, I did run into um, some skepticism and some questions of like, well, how do biofeedback and mindfulness work together? Uh, and the parable of the loot uh, is a beautiful story that describes exactly how that happens. So the this parable tells a story of Sona, uh, who is a who is a son of a rich businessman in ancient India, uh, who became a monk, uh, and um, Sona wanted to achieve enlightenment. Uh, he uh, meditated daily. Daily, he let go of his possessions. Uh, he really dedicated himself uh, to this idea of achieving enlightenment. Um, and he worked really hard at it. But despite his diligence and despite his persistence, he he was frustrated. Um, he couldn't figure out how to become enlightened. So he sought out Buddha uh, and asked him why he wasn't so successful in his practice. And Buddha, knowing that Sona is actually a skilled uh, lute player, asked Sona, Sona, are you not a skilled player of the lute? And answer, uh, Sona answered yes. And Buddha then asked Sona, when you play the lute and its strings are too tight, can you play the lute easily and can you play it well? And Sona said, no, it doesn't work very well. So then the Buddha went on, but when the strings of the lute are too loose, and the, um, it, can you play the lute easily and tunefully? And again, Sona said, no, it doesn't work very well. Then Buddha asked again, but when the strings of the lute are adjusted just right, not too tight, not too loose, how does the lute sound then? And Sona said, yes, that's when I can play it really well. So then Buddha went on to say, Sona, just like the strings of the lute, if you strain too hard to try to achieve your goals by force, you will fail. But if you don't try at all, you will fail too. So the answer is to find the balance between having a sense of purpose and moving towards it and exploring the moment the way it is. So by feedback and mindfulness work together in this exact way, providing us with the middle way, finding the balance between goal-directed action, which is biofeedback, and letting go, which is mindfulness, like tuning the strings of a lute, not too tight, not too loose. Yeah, it's such a great story because it really, it's easy for folks to really appreciate that and mm -hmm. musical element of, of tuning and, and feeling like they're out of tune and having uh, potential strategies to be able to to increase resilience and be able to uh, more easily cope with all the different stressors and demands in their life. And of course, in the book, you talk about how you know biofeedback enhances mindfulness and how on the flip side, mindfulness also enhances biofeedback. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, absolutely. Let me start with talking about how mindfulness enhances biofeedback. That was my first introduction uh, to the combining the two. Um, I find that mindfulness brings biofeedback to its full effectiveness. When, when people get stuck with their efforts uh, to get control of things that they're not under their control or trying really hard um, or you know, being afraid of failure, uh, 
mindfulness allows us to take that step back and let go of that helpful struggle. And then one of the most important uh, skills in biofeedback is to allow these changes to happen instead of trying to force them to happen. And mindfulness allows you to do just that. It allows you to make these mindful changes. Again, you're coming back to that parable of the loot, you know, not too tight, not too loose. You're not trying hard, you're not trying too hard, but you're also not just letting things be how they are. So you're making changes, but you're making them uh, in a mindful way. Um, So then um, mindfulness also allows us to become more aware of what's going on with our body, which is so important in biofeedback. mindfulness skills allow us to regulate our emotions uh, better, uh, allow us to work with with things that often get in the way of uh, biofeedback success. So things like automatic reactions to the present moment, uh, attempts to control the situation that's not under control, and then, of course, judgment of ourselves if we don't quite achieve our goals. So mindfulness allows us to let go of all that and focus on making the kind of changes that are under our control and the kind of changes that we'd like to make. Um, And then on the other hand, uh, biofeedback also enhances mindfulness. Um, One of the biggest ways is biofeedback allows us to be mindful of things that people might fundamentally be resistant to be mindful of. Um, So, for example, you know, if um, someone has uh, panic attacks uh, or, you know, very severe pain, right, um, telling them, well, just be mindful of that experience will often produce a response of no way. (laughs) I'm not doing that. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Um, So with biofeedback training, uh, we um, teach people how to decrease the intensity of that suffering without a struggle but decreased intensity to the degree that they're now able and willing to be mindful of it and to accept it the way it is. Um, We train people in self-regulation, which then reduces intensity of suffering without a struggle. And then in addition, for people who are perhaps skeptical of mindfulness and meditation because you don't you know you don't see it you don't know exactly what's going on Uh, and for some people it does you know sound a little bit um, too touchy-feely or I'm not sure what's happening I don't know if I actually am buying into this stuff Mm -hmm. but I feel that provides a beautiful way of seeing the kinds of changes that mindfulness and meditation actually produce because you know you can hook yourself up to a biofeedback device, practice meditation, and you will see the kind of changes that are happening. Uh, So it's a really nice real-time feedback um, on the effects of meditation. Yeah, well, I mean, what a terrific strategy for so many people. I'm thinking a lot. I work a lot in men's health and, um, you know, this idea of having an objective metric to be able to, as you mentioned, communicate this idea of, of what mindfulness can do and to be able to see it and have it be tangible, um, even all the way up to the athletic side of things in terms of performance and and the tremendous effects it can have, as you mentioned previously there. And, of course, breathing is, is such an integral part of this whole story. And mm. you, know, you talk in the book about over-breathing, which I think some people might not inherently uh, know what that is. You know, Can you discuss uh, what over-breathing is and why people might become over-breathers? Absolutely. So overbreathing is a uh, kind of breathing behavior or breathing dysregulation that is actually much more common than we think that we might think. Um, overbreathing involves breathing out too much carbon dioxide, which ends up uh, in actually reducing the amount of oxygen that is available to our brains, to our muscles, to the rest of our bodies. Um, 
it is a bit counterintuitive um, that we need to conserve so much of our carbon dioxide. Most of the time when people think about breathing, they think about the importance of oxygen. Mm -hmm. And oxygen is, of course, important. We do need to get <laughs> yeah, enough of it. Sure. <laughs> right? It's, it's, it's a pretty important to, for, uh, for daily functioning. But what most people uh, you know, don't realize uh, is that we, we don't really need to make an effort to get enough oxygen. Um, you know, for those of us that live at sea level, you know, if we have you know, mostly healthy hearts, healthy, you know, healthy lungs, then the oxygen that we take in from the air, um, or rather the air that we take in through the process of breathing, contains about 21% oxygen. And then the air we breathe out uh, contains about 15% oxygen. So we're using only a quarter of the oxygen that we take in. Mm -hmm. We have plenty of it, right? We don't need to make an effort. We don't need to take, you know, very big breaths. Um, we don't need to do anything in particular to get enough oxygen. Now, in order for that oxygen to get delivered to where it needs to go, in order for it to get released from the bloodstream, we need to have sufficient carbon dioxide. And this is the part that seems so counterintuitive, um, you know, where Traditionally, we think that carbon dioxide is something we need to get rid of, when in fact, Absolutely. we need to retain about 85% of it, because carbon dioxide is crucial for pH balance and therefore distribution of oxygen. If our pH balance is off, then the oxygen that is uh, circulating in the bloodstream does not get released, and then our brains, our muscles, you know, other organs in our, in our body can get deprived uh, of oxygen, and then, um, you know, the symptoms of that, you know, the experience of uh, over-breathing um, includes things like shortness of breath and rapid heartbeat, feeling lightheaded, um, having foggy mind, kind of having a lot of trouble uh, thinking and focusing and figuring out what to do. Uh, you might have tingliness in your hands and feet. Uh, you might experience some gastrointestinal distress. Um, a lot of the symptoms that people also associate with anxiety, right, so over-breathing and anxiety um, actually the experience is very very similar mm -hmm. and many people uh over breathe without realizing they over breathe they're over breathing and to think that they're being they are experiencing anxiety yeah it's um, fascinating and you mentioned mouth breathing as well which is something that i see mm -hmm. you know more commonly than i would think in in practice as well of you know, whether it's low-grade sinus uh, congestion or mm -hmm. various things that are causing people to to become mouth breathers but that, you know, is that also something that could lead them to be an over-breather if they tend to breathe more in and out through their mouth? Um, yes, but particularly through uh, an open mouth. Uh, you know, if people are breathing out through pursed lips, that is usually okay, but breathing out through an open mouth, like when if you're feeling really congested, um, that's very likely to lead to over-breathing. Um, some other ways that people might uh, become over-breathers uh, is if they have experience with anxiety or panic attacks or um, asthma attacks where they've been worried about getting enough oxygen, right? So they're trying to take these really big breaths, um, in, which of course they don't really need, as I as I just as, as I just mentioned, uh, but because they're taking in so much air in, they breathe out a lot of air as well, and in in the process breathe out too much um, carbon dioxide, interfering with the ability to distribute uh, the oxygen that they do have. That's another you know very common way for people to become overbreathers. Um, people who experience a lot of stress. Um, Oftentimes, you know, the, the body just becomes accustomed to functioning in this fight-or-flight mode, right? Um, and when your body is preparing for running and fighting, uh, it's going to try to take in more oxygen because if you are actually mm -hmm. increasing your physical activity, right, you know, if you're running and fighting, 
exactly you would need the extra oxygen right right but if you're just you know sitting in your office worrying about some big event coming up and you're not um, actually increasing your activity um, then that in increased um, breathing you know the increased volume of air that you are taking in again will result in the over breathing because you end up breathing out too much uh, carbon dioxide so there, there are various ways um, that people can become over breathers and these are some of the most common yeah, it's a really interesting chapter when you dive into the physiology of breathing and these areas that we sort of take for granted and don't devalue quite enough. And of course, the breath being such a, as you mentioned there, such a powerful trigger for the nervous system. Mm -hmm. And HRV is a, is a tool that's used, obviously a powerful tool in biofeedback. Uh, last season, I had a few experts like Dr. Daniel Plews and Dr. Daniel, mm -hmm. uh, Andrew Flatt on the podcast talking HRV and applications in endurance and team sports. But I'm interested here to dive a little deeper into the use of HRV and biofeedback. And you talk in your in the chapter there on it about the resonance frequency breathing rate. Mm -hmm. uh, can you outline what that is and, and some of the research on its effects on things like HRV and mood? Absolutely. Um, heart durability is a really useful tool um, for a number of things, starting from psychophysiological monitoring, like the experts that you've had on your podcast in the past, you know, using heart durability to monitor the athlete's uh, ability to train, recover, etc. cetera. Uh, we can also use heart durability to improve our self-regulation. Um, and that affects um, people who might be struggling with psychophysiological disorders, such as anxiety and chronic pain and high blood pressure, but also can improve uh, performance, whether it be athletic performance or uh, performance in any kind of professional field, because we're training our body uh, to produce optimal activation for whatever uh, challenge might uh, be coming in front of us. Uh, we're training our body to um, activate to just the right level uh, to give us optimal uh, ability to perform and then be able to recover fully once the challenge is over. Um, in order to train and increase our heart rate variability, uh, we can use resonance frequency uh, breathing. Resonance frequency breathing is um, uh, an optimal breathing rate that produces the highest possible heart rate variability. Um, typically, um, as we uh, breathe in, that activates the sympathetic nervous system and our heart rate increases. And as we breathe out, that activates the parasympathetic nervous system and our heart rate decreases. So when we are in a state of this optimal training mode, uh, in a state of resonance frequency, the heart rate and the breath go in sync. Uh, this is something called respiratory sinus arrhythmia. And arrhythmia sounds like a bad word, but in this case, it is actually a very good thing. It is the <laughs> synchrony. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I always need to clarify no, that because good. people get a little <laughs> bit worried little about worried, right? yeah, arrhythmia. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what uh, respiratory sinus arrhythmia means in this case is the synchrony between the heart rate and the breath. Um, and uh, when the heart rate and the breath are uh, synchronized in this optimal way, our heart rate oscillations are maximized, meaning that our heart rate variability is maximized. Um, and then we're able to train our autonomic nervous system to improve its ability to regulate itself. Um, now, for most people, that resonance frequency breathing rate is somewhere between four and a half and seven breaths per minute. We can determine 
where exactly you know someone's resonance frequency breathing rate is by having them you know breathe for a couple of minutes at each one of those breathing rates starting at uh, seven breaths per minute then going down to six and a half six five and a half five and four and a half um, breaths per minute and measure their heart rate variability at each one of those breathing rates uh, and then see which one produces maximal um, heart rate variability. Once we determine their resonance frequency breathing rate, we can train that person to breathe at that rate as they're training breathing. Right? So this is a really important point. We're not expecting people to breathe at this very slow breathing rate all the time. Mm-hmm. That's not possible and not necessary. Uh, you, we, you can think of it as a workout for your autonomic nervous system. So the same way that you know you might uh, go to the gym um, and do strength training, say you know three or four times a week, uh, you don't need to keep your uh, dumbbells or kettlebells on you at all times in order to maintain the progress you've made. Right? You know, as long as you keep coming back to the gym um, and doing your workout, you will continue making progress and maintain the gains you've made. The same thing happens with heart rate variability training. When you do your 20 minute a day resonance frequency breathing rate practice, your heart rate variability increases, your ability to self-regulate increases, uh, and then that ability stays with you uh, and you continue improving for as long as you continue the regular practice. Yeah, such a great tool to be able to provide that feedback and be able to find that resonance frequency breathing rate. Because again, as you mentioned before, whether people may not gravitate to meditation or or mindfulness and to be able to see that real time and you know you know if we circle back to mindfulness there are you know as you know a lot of definitions of mindfulness mm. you know what is the definition that you use in practice and that you use in the book yeah um there are so many definitions of mindfulness and every i think everybody has their own um the definition that um i like in particular um is one by dr christopher germer and he defines mindfulness as pre-verbal experience of the present moment with acceptance or pre-verbal awareness of the present moment with acceptance. Um, The idea here that I think is so incredibly important is that pre-verbal awareness because once we start putting words to our experience, there come evaluations and interpretations which may sometimes lead us to unhelpful reactions to the present experience. So, being able to just stay with how things are before we interpret them will allow us to make the kind of interpretation that will lead us to most helpful response. Yeah, it's fascinating, fascinating stuff. And, you know, we'd look at things like mindfulness-based techniques. You know, I know the concept of mindfulness was popularized in the early 1970s, I believe, right, by John Mm -hmm. Kabat-Zinn and Yep, John Mm -hmm. Kabat-Zinn. So much research, obviously, uh, accelerating, especially in the last decade. Um, but what are some of the changes that can occur in the brain with respect to things like, you know, whether it's gray matter, hippocampus, et cetera, in response to some of these mindfulness-based techniques? Mm-hmm. Um, Sarah Lazar, um, in her lab at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, has and, um, and a few of her colleagues have conducted some really fascinating um, studies on what happens in the brain with uh, continued practice of mindfulness meditation. So what... Um, What they showed is that after as little as eight weeks of mindfulness practice, now fairly intense, about 30 minutes a day for eight weeks, um, our brains 
experience both structural and functional changes. So um, until fairly recently, we thought that our brains um, kind of stayed the way they were and we couldn't produce uh, new neurons, like we couldn't increase our uh, brain matter. But we actually, as it turns out, we actually can. Uh, this is a concept of Incredible. neuroplasticity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is really cool. And meditation uh, is one of the ways in which we can make uh, produce these kinds of changes in the brain. So, um, for example, after about eight weeks of mindfulness meditation training, uh the hippocampus, which is the part of the brain that's responsible for learning, memory, and emotion regulation, becomes both larger, so the gray matter in the hippocampus actually increases, so you're growing new neurons, um, and the hippocampus becomes more active. Um, another example is the right insula, uh, which is the part of the uh, brain that's responsible for things like body awareness, uh, empathy, perspective taking, uh, also becomes larger and more active. And um, the part of the brain that's responsible for attention and behavioral control, which is the anterior cingulate cortex, becomes more active as well. And what's also really interesting is that the amygdala, which is the fight or flight center of the brain, right, it's responsible for fear and anxiety, um, actually becomes smaller, but it does so in a very selective way. So, you know, your brain has the right side and the left side, mm-hmm. and you have the right and the left amygdala. Now, the right amygdala is responsible for that immediate, automatic, um, you know, very intense uh, response to potential danger, right? It's the one that kind of tells you, oh, no, 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 get out of here, right? It's the part of the brain that can often <laughs> yeah. make you feel like you're out of control, right? Um, and the left amygdala is responsible for more measured response to stress. So what... Um, Sarah Lazar and her um, colleague Britta Holzel found uh, in their studies was that um, the right amygdala after eight weeks of mindfulness meditation becomes smaller, but the left amygdala does not, right? So the only part of the amygdala uh, that's uh, being reduced in size and activation is the one that's producing the unhelpful response and the part of the amygdala. Yeah, it, 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 it uh, it is really cool. You know, today, obviously, with the social media generation, with, uh, you know, apps being sort of designed to elicit responses and immediate responses and trigger those areas of the brains that make us more impulsive and less empathetic, hmm. you know, it, it seems like, obviously, mindfulness and these types of techniques are, are almost going to become re- required learning at some point, no? Mm. I hope so. Um, I, I certainly hope so. They make such a big difference in our ability to uh, respond to our environment, whether it be the internal environment or the external environment. Um, and the nice thing is um, there is no requirement um, to you know, be a certain way. This is not a religious practice or it does not have to be a religious practice. Well, mm-hmm. it certainly can be a part of religious practice. It doesn't have to be. Um, this is just um, another learning tool, which I think is as essential as math and reading and writing because it helps us navigate in our environment in the best possible way. 100%. And, you know, we definitely obviously see a big growth in mindfulness, but I'm sure there's still a lot of myths that persist in this area and perhaps prevent some people from jumping on board. You know, what are some of the myths that still uh, you confront when discussing this topic? Mm, yeah, it's a, re- it's a really, really good question. Um, because mindfulness has become such a popular word, um, there is a, uh, some people do hold a concept that, you know, mindfulness can cure everything. 
Um, you know, whatever the problem is, <laughs> Give just some mindfulness. learn mindfulness. <laughs> exactly, exactly. That'll fix it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and while I do think that mindfulness can help absolutely everybody in some way, mm-hmm. um, mindfulness is not a cure for everything. Right. So I think we need to be careful in evaluating the research. Um, there, there is strong support for mindfulness as an intervention for a certain number of disorders. So uh, anxiety, depression, and chronic pain have the most scientific support uh, in studies that are well-designed, um, studies that are run by different labs, uh, you know, that produce you know, strong, uh, at, le- at least medium-sized you know, effect sizes, um, meaning that the effect of mindfulness is noticeable and important. Mm-hmm. Um, there are lots of applications for mindfulness, but not every area has sufficient research support for us to be able to say that, you know, yes, we definitely want to apply mindfulness for these disorders. Um, and at the same time, we also want to be uh, careful to say that, you know, mindfulness is not a cure even for these disorders where it has been found to be effective, anxiety, depression, pain, you know, more recently addiction. Um, mindfulness will help but it will not cure. Mm-hmm. Um, it is not, there is nothing magical about it. It's not a, ma- it's not a magic pill that, you know, you practice a few times and suddenly um, everything is so much better. It will make a big difference uh, in someone's life, uh, but we have to be careful in our expectations. Absolutely. Well said. And, you know, it seems like a tool that helps to just raise the playing field. So a lot of these other, uh, to, to in fact, support recovery or to support the person to another the other modalities they might be using could even, you know, potentially work better for them in that sense of, you know, raising the tide. And, you know, you talk about, you know, the different components of training. We've talked physiological and obviously emotional being a key aspect. And, you know, you go through the various emotions in the, in the book, which is terrific. And, you know, if we kick, kick off here around emotions, one of them in which, you know, shame is something that, again, in my practice, whether it's with general public or athletes, I'm surprised um, the theme of this coming up more frequently. And, you know, you write that when a person feels shame, they f- feel fundamentally broken or not good enough, leading mm-hmm. to thoughts like, I'm a failure, I'm useless, I'm not good enough. And how the more you fight with shame, the more likely you are to lash out at others and people around you. So again, not something I expected to see as much as I did in, in, in practice. And, you know, can you talk about some of the origins of shame and the, the differences between things like shame and guilt? Yeah, absolutely. Um, shame is probably one of the most difficult emotions that we as human beings experience. Um, and as as difficult as it is, and as unpleasant as it is, and as much as we would like to not have it, uh, it does serve a function. And it's an evolutionary function that has developed, you know, over thousands uh, um, of years as human beings were evolving. The evolutionary function of shame is to um, prevent us from being cast out of our social group. Mm-hmm. Um, when um, human beings are um, not part of a social group, we don't do so well. You know, in uh, um, you know, back thousands of years ago, when our ancestors lived in caves and there was a lot of danger around, um, it was very clear. You know, if you were, were cast out, cast out of your group, 
you would get eaten. Yeah, it was a long life after that, was it? Exactly, exactly. We just did not do well without without people around us. Um, and nowadays, while you know there may not be as much physical danger, uh, but the emotional danger is just as great. If we are cast out of our social group, um, we don't do well. You know, we you know people don't live well by themselves. You know, we don't do well when, when we're lonely. Uh, we develop a lot of physical and emotional problems um, if we feel like we don't belong. Uh, so the evolutionary function of shame is really to prevent that from happening. Uh, you know, if the, the idea is uh, to help us uh, behave in ways that will uh, keep us connected with a group uh, and that will help us uh, stay safe within that group. And interestingly, there's research around the use of HRV and things like shame. Can you share some of the recent research in this area? Yeah, and uh, let me actually go back for a second to Absolutely. address the second part of your question that I missed, uh, which is the difference between shame and guilt, because I think that's also really important. Guilt is another emotion that um, helps us stay within our social group. Uh, but the difference is that the guilt uh, points us to mistakes we've made and actions we've taken that may have harmed others. So guilt is very adaptive in that way because it um, helps us take responsibility and make amends for things that we've done wrong. Shame, on the other hand, points us to the parts of us that are fundamentally bad. And uh, this is what's so hard about shame because it just kind of eats away at you, um, making making you feel that, you know, you as a person is not good enough, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, Brene Brown, who's written so much um, on, on shame, talks about uh, guilt as being, I made a mistake and shame as I am a mistake. And I think that's a really beautiful, eloquent uh, description um, between guilt and shame. And this is exactly what makes shame so hard to experience because it's as if we are just one big giant mistake. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is where heart variability uh, biofeedback can become um, so important uh, because it can actually help us cope with the intense uh, feelings of shame that are so hard to experience and that may often make us do things like lash out at other people in anger or lash out at ourselves in anger. Uh, Really anything to make the feelings of shame stop. So, you know, you asked me about the research um, Mm -hmm. in um, heart variability and shame. Um, There is not as much out there as I'd like to see, but there are a few um, recent studies that uh, show that heart variability is uh, lower in people who are experiencing shame. Um, And a recent study actually showed that uh, people who are experiencing shame have a bigger drop in their heart variability than when they're experiencing um, anxiety, right? So it's not just any uh, so-called negative emotion that will uh, impact our heart variability, but shame in particular has the biggest effect, right? So this means that shame in particular has the greatest detriment to our ability to self-regulate, has the greatest detriment to our ability to be resilient and adaptable to whatever is is going on in our lives, Uh, which also means that um, this is also where heart variability biofeedback can be so incredibly helpful if we train our ability to self-regulate, if we improve our ability to be resilient in the face of uh, strong emotions like shame, um, then we will improve our ability to um, function uh, on a daily basis. And improve our ability to be part of a group, which is what uh, the emotion of shame is designed uh, 
to do, but sometimes goes awry and actually prevents us from being uh, part of a group. You touched on other emotions as well in the book, which is terrific. You know, things like anxiety and fear. Uh, rates of anxiety are obviously increasing in the general population. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of myths out there about anxiety, you know, similar um, to some of the themes we've touched on before, but how, you know, anxiety is the enemy, you know, you shouldn't be afraid, but rather brave in the face of fear. There's a lot of the stories that are passed on and, mm-hmm. you know, could you give us again a little bit of an evolutionary uh, background on, on the value of fear and where this response really is occurring in the brain? Certainly. Um, so the fear is generated by the part of our brain called the amygdala that I mentioned a little while ago. Uh, it's part of the limbic system. Uh, it's part of our so-called reptilian brain, meaning that it's part of the uh, evolutionarily speaking old part of the brain. It's a part of the brain we share with lots of other animals, including reptiles. So it's the same part of the brain that you know will help a snake that's kind of sunning itself on the rock and suddenly notices shadow overhead. Uh, get out, uh, get, get off the rock and hide under the rock mm-hmm. and, and then figure out, well, you know, was that shadow a hawk coming to eat me or is it just a cloud passing overhead? Uh, that the amygdala in the snake works the same way as it works in the human brain. When we, when amygdala perceives sign of danger, it basically tells us run, get out of here, save yourself, stay safe. And only then will it allow us to figure out, well, was there, was, was that actually danger or, you know, are we okay here? Um, so the evolutionary function of um, fear is to keep us safe. That's really that's all the amygdala is trying to do. Um, and sometimes uh, the amygdala does become uh, does produce a, a, an overly intense, uh, unhelpful uh, response, even though it's only trying to keep us safe. You know, we, we often feel like anxiety is the enemy, right? In- anxiety is preventing me from, um, you know, getting on that plane, um, you know, to go on a family vacation that I've been thinking about for so long, right? But I'm, I'm afraid that that plane is, is going to crash, so I can't get on the plane. Mm-hmm. Uh, or anxiety might prevent me from going in a job interview um, for a job that I really, really want, but anxiety is telling me that, oh no, you might fail, right? Or anxiety might um, prevent you from, uh, you know, doing your best um, in a in a game, you know, because you're just so worried about failing your teammates um, that you become frozen, unable to function at your best. Um, when these situations happen, we experience anxiety is, uh, oh no, anxiety is trying to ruin my life. I just need to get rid of it. Right? Mm-hmm. But I think the most important thing for us to understand about anxiety is it's actually trying to protect us. Uh, it's trying to prevent us from uh, getting ourselves into trouble. And it does overdo it sometimes. It becomes overprotective. Uh, but its function is always a positive one. It, you know, it, it is, function of anxiety is never to ruin our lives. So when we learn to experience anxiety as something that is perhaps misguided but friendly, uh, we're able to stop fighting with it. We're able to stop struggling with it. And then we can actually find ways to respond to anxiety in a way, that, in a way that's helpful. Yeah, it's so fascinating. I mean, when we think of even physical pain as, again, a signal that's telling us and informing us that this is not a good position to be in and it's trying to actually mm-hmm. help us versus the fear that most people and clients get when they do feel pain, you know, that the, in terms of weakness or whatnot and potential injury and how from an emotional aspect, this is a very similar thing to what you're explaining around. This is a signal letting you know that there's a potential 
uh, threat or something that needs to be navigated. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, we do we do rather just run away than try to interpret these signals, right? Exactly. And of course, you know, you you talk about trying to recognize obviously the value of anxiety, as you just mentioned. Um, and you you outline different types of anxiety responses. Could you share an example or two? Um, certainly. Um, so sometimes anxiety just points us to something that's very practical. You know, let's say um, you know you have uh, a big exam um, the next day, um, and you just don't feel very prepared, uh, and you're feeling very anxious about it, right? So um, this is a very practical kind of anxiety that tells you, well, go sit down and study some more, right? Um, anxiety sometimes. Uh, you know, is 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 about safety, right? And you find ourselves in a dark alley at three in the morning in an unfamiliar place. You know, we're going to be anxious and rightfully so. And that in that situation, we really need to get ourselves out of that situation and mm-hmm. get ourselves to safety, right? Um, and then there are times when anxiety um, is uh, pointing towards something that may not be. Uh, a, a, addressable in a practical way you know let's say you know you have that uh, you know big match uh, the next day and you know you're feeling you know you're feeling ready you know you've been training and you know your team has been performing really well um, but then you know you find yourself going oh no you know what if I screw up what if I let everybody down uh, and there is nothing you can really do about it right there is no like you, you don't go out and train at that moment that's not going to help there is nothing that really needs to be done um, and this is the kind of anxiety that we're the most likely to get stuck in it is the kind of anxiety that um, is pointing us towards what's important right it's pointing us towards you know we are you know, we just really want to do well. You know, uh, this uh, our team is really important, um, and this particular match is really important. And all we want to do is do our best. Um, and this is where recognizing the value of anxiety comes in um, in such an important way. Rather than going, "Oh no, anxiety is going to prevent me from doing my best," we can treat it as anxiety is just pointing out what's important to me, and it may be being a bit overprotective, <laughs> but it is. Uh, it's not here to ruin my life. It is just here to remind me what's important. And if we can treat anxiety in that way, then we're able to disengage, not get stuck in it, and then be able to perform at our best. Very well said. And uh, so many fascinating chapters and areas in the book that really folks can really dig into. And you know, I loved your introduction. You write about how you know this book is about simple, practical solutions to improve the way you respond to life challenges. And increasing your resiliency and emotional flexibility, you know, something that I think most of us are trying to do. And like anything, like like nutrition, like exercise, you know, fitting, in this case, mindfulness or biofeedback strategies into one's life can be challenging, right? Compliance is always challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, and you provide some great tips on how people can, you know, how can they get started with this type of uh, training plan, biofeedback, mindfulness. Mm-hmm. Um, this is an excellent question, uh, particularly because you know we can have all the skills out there in the world, but if people are not able to practice them, if we're not a- if we're not able to bring them into our everyday life, these skills are of absolutely no use. Um, and habit change is hard. It's 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 hard to. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's surprisingly hard sometimes to find five minutes in a day. You know when I when I start uh, talking about making these changes with my clients um, and I say, Oh, you know, ideally you'll be doing this for 20 minutes a day. And they say, Oh yeah, no problem. 
Uh, but then I say, well, wait, but we're actually going to start with about five minutes. Well, why do we have to do that? Because it's surprisingly hard to find 20 minutes. It seems like it's nothing, right? In 24 hours, 20 minutes is nothing. But, you know, we live such busy lives and there's so much going on. Um, it Finding 20 minutes right off the bat um, can actually set us up for failure because we're not able to do it on a daily basis. So the, mm-hmm. my uh, my suggestion is to start small. Uh, for some people, you know, we may be starting with two or three minutes. You know, when lives are just so difficult, you know, their children and uh, um, you know spouses that need attention and jobs and you know exams and interviews and all sorts of things that you know keep coming at you, you start with a couple minutes a day. Or maybe you start with five minutes a day. And once that you know, five minutes a day uh, becomes uh, more habitual, when it just becomes part of your day, you can extend that to 10 minutes and then 15 and then 20 minutes. Um, and it might take you know, a month or even two months to get to that 20-minute time. Uh, but the point is to get there, right? Because if, uh, if we don't give ourselves a little bit of uh, you know, that startup time, we may never uh, get to 20 minutes. Um, and it's much better to start small and get to the goal than overshoot overshoot and exactly yes so that's uh, that's the best tip i can give us you know st- start small uh, figure out how it fits into your day and then extend from there that's fantastic advice and you know the book is full of so many f- phenomenal practical um, tips and strategies and ways for folks to build out their plan in terms of you know picking the modality and making a plan and monitoring progress so you know Tremendous, tremendous book, uh, Dr. Hazan. Really appreciate you taking the time out today and, and sharing all these insights with us. Where can people stay connected with uh, you and your work and, and pick up the book? Um, thank you, Mark. It's been a real pleasure um, speaking with you. You ask really great, important questions. Um, if uh, people would like to get the book, it is available on Amazon. It's called um, Mindful by Feedback and Mindfulness in um, Everyday Life, and the subtitle is Practical Solutions for Improving Your Health and Performance. Um, there are recorded uh, meditation practices that accompany the book. And they are available um, for free on my website, uh, inahazan.com. Um, and that website also provides a lot more information uh, about my work. Um, and if anyone is interested in the performance side of what I do, there is a different website for that. Uh, and that's uh, aretéboston.com, A-R-E-T-E, boston.com. Yeah, phenomenal, phenomenal stuff. It's definitely one uh, I'll be reading over and over again and trying to get up to my 20 minutes a day. So I appreciate you uh, taking the time, Doc, and uh, all the best. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Bose Performance Podcast. If you enjoy the content, please consider subscribing on iTunes, YouTube, or your favorite podcasting platform to show your support. And it's also a tremendous help to the show and helps us to continue to attract high-quality guests. If you haven't heard, my new book, Peak, The New Science of Athletic Performance that is Revolutionizing Sports, is out. And I'm pleased to announce we actually hit the Amazon bestseller list in Canada and in the U.S., in sports medicine, physical medicine and rehab, and holistic medicine categories. So you can find out more info on that and the expert insights at athleteevolution.org. That's athleteevolution.org. And of course, you can pick up a copy on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Chapters Indigo, Waterstones, or your local booksellers. Awesome. If you have any questions or want to leave a comment on today's episode, you can reach out on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Dr. Bubs. 
And thanks again, folks, for listening, and we'll see you all next week with more expert insights. The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts.